Okay, I guess it's time to start. Um, so we're even farther behind, but that's okay. That means we can catch up faster. Um, so for tomorrow, we'll talk about books 9 and 10. Um, I hope you've read through book 9, um, which the snow day will have given you ample time to do, right? Good. Um, but uh, definitely um, have read through books 9 and 10 for tomorrow, and then the last two books over break. Um, we will send out paper topics tonight. Uh, just to say about the paper, you don't have to do one of those topics, but um, we think they're um, um, helpful and stimulating. At least we are hopeful they're helpful and um, helplessly hoping that they are. Um, but if you want to do some other topic, that's fine. It's, uh, you should write about something that you want to write about. Um, I mean, as long as it's relevant to the course. And in this case, relevance to the course will mean stuff that we've done, um, primarily King Lear and Paradise Lost. I will repeat what it says on the syllabus um, so that um, I can emphasize it, which is do not do research for this paper. Do not do outside reading. Do not read Sparknotes or Schmoop or whatever. Um, write this paper as your own response to the reading. There will be a research paper later on in this course. The last paper will require you to do some research. But the first two papers don't. The first two papers are not about what you're, not about you're figuring out what other people had to say and agreeing or disagreeing, um, but you're responding the way the writers um, wanted you to respond, which is as yourself. Um, as a person who is reading and being interested in this. That's one reason that it's fine if you do your own paper topic, um, because it should be what, how you're responding, what you're interested in. Um, but, there, but we will have some paper topics on offer for you later. Um, remember, again, that the papers are officially due on the Monday after vacation, which is February 22nd but you can get an automatic extension, which you do not have to ask for. You don't have to email us. You don't have to tell us that you're taking the two days. You can just take them and hand the paper in on uh, February 24th, the Wednesday after vacation. Um, so that's the main thing to say about the papers. Um, okay, so to try and catch up and um, race a little bit through uh, the middle books of Paradise Lost till we get to the last part. One thing you will have noticed, and I hope we'll get to that today, is that in the invocation to book seven of Paradise Lost, so again, remember we talked about invocations. The invocation of book one is, Muse, tell me of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. The invocation of book three, Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn. Um, the possible invocation of book four, the failed invocation to book four, oh, for that warning voice, which he doesn't get, the warning voice that would have allowed Adam and Eve perhaps to escape from the um, danger and um, by being forewarned, they would be forearmed against the danger of Satan. So, um, and a... Um, um, an invocation for voice where he is not given that voice. Notice, I think I didn't stress this enough um, last week, that that voice would be a voice that is sujet rather than fabula. It would be a voice that would be the voice of the teller of the story warning the characters in his story who lived... Um, 5,600 years earlier, according to most accounts of how long it was since the creation of the world, um, who lived 5,600 years earlier, not to do what, in the, what the story tells us that they are going to do. So the idea is that the teller of the story wants a voice that can intervene as one of the things that happen in the story that he is telling. And that's a place where the story about the narrator becomes a story about the story the narrator wishes he could tell by narrating differently. But his voice, his narrative voice, the voice of the poet, the voice of the person telling the story, can't do that, can't affect what happened in a story that he's telling about what happened 5,600 years before his birth. So 
that invocation of book four is a failed invocation. Then the invocation of book seven, which, as I say, I hope we'll get to at the end of class today, is the invocation um, in which he now talks about how the second half of the poem remains unsung. He wants help to sing it. He invokes the muse again. And that second half of the poem is the half of the poem that occurs on earth, not in heaven, not in hell. So the poem begins in hell. It then goes to heaven. It then goes to earth. But then Raphael tells the story of the battle in heaven, and that um, go that that retrospective story that Raphael tells of the of um, God declaring that His only begotten Son will now be the head of all the angels. Satan objecting to this and leading a rebellion against God. Abdiel objecting to Satan and staying loyal to the loyal angels. Um, Satan giving Abdiel safe conduct, which is something, again, that you should notice about his nobility of, um, of um, character, is that he gives safe conduct to his enemy so that Abdiel can leave the rebel angels and rejoin the um, loyal angels. Um, the war in heaven, the apparent victory of the rebel angels followed by their decisive defeat. All of that occurs before the beginning of Paradise Lost and gets us to the beginning of Paradise Lost, the defeat of Satan and his followers, which then takes us to the very start where Satan finds himself in hell. Um, so there again, what you have is the exposition is occurring in a different order from the events that are being described. Um, typical, as I say, of all narrative and particularly typical of epic. In um, the Aeneid, for example, um, do people know this? Who Aeneas tells his story to? Anyone? Aeneas is, um, begins somewhat like Satan, and Milton is thinking of this, in a storm at sea being blown off course, unable to get to the land where he is going to try to recover after the absolute destruction of the city of Troy, of one of whose um, major warriors he was. Um, he's blown off course like Satan in chaos. Um, Aeneas is blown to Carthage where he meets Dido, the queen of Carthage, and um, Dido um, invites him to dinner, and he tells the story of the fall of Troy, which occurred before he, Aeneas, was in danger uh, at sea. So like in the Aeneid, Milton has us go back to a story which leads to the beginning of the story that he's telling. Odysseus does the same thing in the Odyssey. He tells the king of the Phaeacians after he is um, saved from shipwreck his story up to the time of his shipwreck. So shipwreck and retrospective story, um, that's something that Milton is getting from the great classical writers. And what Milton does is to compare himself in the invocation of book three to other blind writers, and in particular to Milton. I mean, excuse me, to Homer, an interesting slip. Um, Milton compares himself to other blind poets and prophets, partly because Milton is thinking of himself as writing prophetic poetry, poetry as prophecy, but perhaps more important, prophecy as poetry. This is something the Romantic poets will pick up as well. So at any rate, in book five, God who sees everything is watching Satan prepare his rebellion. God is a kind of NSA of heaven. Um, he's watching Satan prepare his rebellion. And if you go, excuse me, to book six, um, not book five, book six, um, go to um, book six um, and um, first... Yeah, go to book six. No, I'm sorry, it is book five. There's something in book six I wanted to point you to. Um, book five, um, line seven. Um, 
Uh, around line 710, um, the false archangel is drawing all the people with him um, at line 706, for great indeed his name, and high was his degree in heaven. His countenance as the morning star that guides the starry flock allured them, and with lies drew after him the third part of heaven's host. This is all Raphael telling the story of the war in heaven. He's called like the morning star because the original idea of Satan rebelling against God comes from a passage in Isaiah where the morning star is called Lucifer, son of the morning. And it's a mysterious passage in Isaiah, which was then read as the rebellion of an archangel. So meanwhile, at line 711, meanwhile, the eternal eye, whose sight discerns abstruses thoughts from forth his holy mount and from within the golden lamps <coughs> that burn nightly before him, saw without their light, rebellion rising. So God, meanwhile, God is watching all this. He saw, he doesn't need light to see. He saw without their light, rebellion rising. Saw in whom? How spread among the sons of morn. So there's, that's Lucifer, son of the morning. Saw in whom? How spread among the sons of morn. What multitudes were banded to oppose his high decree and smiling to his only son. Thus said, Son, thou in whom my glory I behold in full resplendence. So there's the sun as the radiant image of God's glory. Heir of all my might, nearly. And you should actually wonder about that phrase, heir of all my might. That is, how is the son going to inherit God's might if God lives forever, if God is outside of time? Um, we won't explore that in this class, but it's an, actually an interesting question and something that Milton probably gave a lot of thought to. Heir of all my might, nearly it now concerns us to be sure of our omnipotence. And with what arms we mean to hold what anciently we claim of deity or empire, such a foe is rising. Hang on to that phrase, such a foe. Um, and notice the kind of um, wonder in that phrase. That is, this foe, this is unprecedented. Such a foe, such a foe is rising who intends to erect his throne equal to ours throughout the spacious north. Nor, so content, hath in his thought to try in battle what our power is or our right let us advise into this hazard, that is this danger, draw with speed what force is left, and all employ in our defense, lest unawares we lose this our high place, our sanctuary, our hill. So God is saying we have to take steps because Satan and his followers are such a foe that we're in danger, we might lose this, our high place, our sanctuary, our hill. So that's kind of maybe a confirmation of Satan's view that God is not the center of the universe, is not omnipotent, is not almighty. It looks that way, but remember that he's smiling as he says this, which is either creepy or relieving, depending on whose side you're on. And the sun immediately picks up on that smile to whom the sun with calm aspect and clear lightning divine, ineffable, serene, but notice not smiling, made answer, mighty father, thou thy foes justly hast in derision, and secure laughst at their vain designs and tumults vain. So what he's basically saying is you're right to be making this joke. Um, so, did you guys come upon the meme I came across it um, this weekend called douchebag splaining? Do you guys know what, you know what mansplaining is, right? Everyone knows what mansplaining is? Oh, I'm not going to mansplain it, but, um, so douchebag splaining is, um, the new meme, it's great. It's someone says something racist or sexist or vicious and waits to see if anyone laughs, and, um, if they don't, then he says, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> 
It was just a joke. You misunderstood me. Um, no, wait to see how people respond. And then um, if they're pissed off, he'll say it's a joke. Um, so that's kind of what God is doing here. And the son is saying, good joke, this fear that you are claiming to have about Satan. So the question is, was it really a joke on God's part? Or was God kind of lying, kind of saying, we're in trouble, not because they really are in trouble, but in order to manipulate people. But the son immediately takes it as a joke. And he says, good joke, and the father then accepts. And he says, yeah, it was a good joke, wasn't it? Notice that word derision, justly hast thou thy foes, father thy foes justly hast in derision. Um, and notice that derision is a word associated with Satan. This is the part in book six that um, I wanted you to see. Um, Satan watches as the loyal angels are being defeated by the new gunpowder he's invented. Um, Satan beheld, you don't have to go to this, I'll just read it to you. Satan beheld their plight and to his mates thus in derision called, oh friends, why, not, why come not on these victors proud? So derision seems to be a characteristic attitude of both God and Satan towards their enemies. Um, as you will see later, the son does not feel it beneath him to clothe his enemies. The son is very different from the father. One place, as I say, that we just saw it is justly hast, hast thou thy foes in derision. Um, I think a more important and telling place is back in book three, when God is explaining why after Adam and Eve fall, someone's got to die. Someone's got to pay for it. There has to be a fall guy. See what I did there? Fall guy for their sin. So what he says, this is book three, um, around um, 203, but, all, but yet all is not done. Man, disobeying, disloyal, breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead and so losing all to expiate his treason hath not left. He's lost everything, so he has nothing to pay to expiate his treason. But to destruction sacred and devote, he with his whole posterity must die. And then a famous line, um, often um, objected to on, on, on the grounds that it's not English, die he or justice must. So what does that mean? Paraphrase it, someone? Yeah, Hannah? Yeah, um, either humans have to die or justice dies. So, say it again. Okay, what was it? Say it again. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, they are the um, as J.K. Rowling was thinking. They are what Leibniz calls incompossible. That is, they can't both be possible at the same time. So die he or justice must. But uh, there is a way out. Nice world there. Shame if anything happened to it. Um, die he or justice must, unless for him some other able and has willing pay the rigid satisfaction death for death. So what do we think of that as a moral idea? Someone has to die, and otherwise the universe won't be just. Um, doesn't have to be. Adam and Eve, if someone else is willing to die, does that sound like justice to you? It actually does sound like justice to a lot of the Supreme Court, um, which is that if someone is convicted of a murder, even if they are actually innocent, um, this is true that there are members of the Supreme Court who have said this. It hasn't actually won in the Supreme Court yet, but it's close. Actual innocence isn't a reason not to be executed. Um, if someone has gone through the entire um, process of being tried, convicted, found guilty, appealed, um, found guilty again, and so on, actual innocence isn't a reason that, um, to vacate their conviction. 
um, because justice is a process rather than a determination of truth. Um, so that's kind of, some people think that's kind of weird. Um, other people think that's how societies work. Um, God seems to be in the latter case. Um, God um, on the Supreme Court, you know which, so this God, which side he would rule on. And what he's saying is someone has to die. Adam and Eve sinned, someone has to die. If there isn't anyone else, it has to be Adam and Eve. If there is someone else, then the demands of justice can be met by that other person's dying. Um, you guys have read The Giver? It's a little bit like The Giver. Um, so what do we think of that? You, Milton is trying to justify the ways of God to you. Does this seem just to you? Can, does anyone want to defend this? That could be a paper topic. It's not one of the ones I'm going to list, but that could be a paper topic. Defend God? Actually, maybe I will list that. No one wants to defend it right now, though. Okay, so someone has to die. Die he or justice must, unless for him some other able, and as willing as able, pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. So Adam and Eve have to, are able to pay the satisfaction, but that's all they can do. The only way that they can make up for what they've done is to stop existing. But if someone else is willing to do it, as able as they are and also willing, then that's okay. So as we know, the son volunteers, and if you go to now, just go down to line, um, to his speech at line 227, Father, thy word is past, man shall find grace. So he's saying, you said it, there will be grace. And if man shall find grace, and grace is what grace is, and shall grace, then shall grace not find means. Grace that finds her way, the speediest of thy winged messengers, to visit all thy creatures, and to all comes unprevented, unimplored, unsought. So you said that man shall find grace if someone is willing to die for him. I'm going to push on the fact that man will find grace because the thing about grace is grace is gracious. So he then goes on, happy for man so coming, he her aid can never seek, once dead in sins and lost, atoning for himself or offering meat, indebted and undone, hath none to bring. So, yeah, you're right. I see exactly what you're saying. Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer on me, let thine anger fall, account me man. So the first and most important theological idea here is that some man has to die because man has sinned. Jesus will become man, or the son will become the man Jesus, and therefore as a man who has never sinned, he will die. And because he, he hasn't sinned, he will actually be able to pay off the debt that, because he doesn't owe anything himself for his fellow man. And that's good. Yeah? I'm slightly confused. If, if the son's just going to die for everybody, then why does everybody keep dying? Um, because, why does he kill Adam um, Because... Again, it's sujet and fabula. So here what the son is saying is there will be a time, and it's at the very beginning, remember, till one greater man. It's of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world in all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us. So we have to go through, you know, we have to have this time out of several millennia um, in which we think about what we've done then we have to um, appreciate that someone who is willing to be like us in order to pay our debt did that for us. That by itself isn't enough because we keep sinning. It's not just that we ate the fruit, but after that we were perfectly good. Um, but being perfectly good isn't enough once you've eaten the fruit. It's not like 
Well, it's true that um, he killed his um, two children, um, his grandparents, and his dog, but since then he's been a model prisoner, so we should release him. Um, even if we were model prisoners, we wouldn't be released, but we're not model prisoners. Far from it. Why, some of us don't even keep up with the reading, if you can believe it. So, what Jesus can do as a man is pay the first debt, which is eating the fruit of the um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and which whose penalty is death. After that, we will be in a position where if we are truly repentant, we can make up for the other sins that we commit. But if we're not truly repentant, we won't. So some will go to heaven and some will go to hell. And those who will go to hell will be those who aren't repentant, who don't accept God's offered grace. And God's offered grace in this theory takes the form of, first of all, feeling and appreciating and loving Jesus for what he did for us. That is, feeling that we're sinners and could never have done this for ourselves, and that we continue to be sinners, and acknowledging that, but at least in acknowledging it, being open to repentance, which is what God is about to say. That, a beat, that repentance and um, contrition and so on, God will not close his ears to that. Yeah. So I just want to be clear. So he's basically punishing for the sake of punishment? Yes. Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because it wasn't, okay, yeah. Yeah, but there's also this theory of, um, of equivalent exchange. That is, we're in huge debt and there's no forgiveness of the debt. It's like student loans. Um, we're in huge debt and the only way to pay that debt, um, since we're not making any money, the only way to pay that debt is if someone else who has a lot of money agrees to um, co-sign, and that's Jesus. And this, this, the financial metaphors are the metaphors of the story. Redemption is a financial metaphor. The son says, account me man. Um, this is at line 238. And the word account there really means account. That is, put me on the ledger. It's, it's not a metaphorical word. It's a literal word. Put me on the ledger as one of man's assets rather than liabilities. So account there really does mean financial account. Redemption is a financial word. You redeem a bond. Um, that means you, you buy a bond by lending money to um, the bond seller, and then the bond is redeemed when that money is paid back. These financial metaphors, you know, we take them as, as all spiritual these days, but they are literally financial, and, they are, and um, they are meant to be financial. So that is the story that Milton is trying to justify. And the justification partly takes the form of a really interesting thing the son does, which is to take what is the son echoing when he says, life for life I offer? What's he echoing in what the father has just said? Yeah. Yes, the rigid satisfaction, death for death. So what the son persistently does in Paradise Lost and what makes him a great character is that he is always claiming to paraphrase what God has just said. Oh yeah, like what you just said. But he always changes that paraphrase to make it better. He, God says something and the son says, I totally agree with you. God says, man can't be saved. And the son says, I totally agree with you. The only way to save man is if. Um, and God hears the I totally agree with you part and then agrees with the son's agreement with him. Um, the son, after all, is his image, or so he thinks. So one of the really neat dynamics in Paradise Lost, worth looking at, one of the really neat dynamics in Paradise Lost, is the interaction between the son and the father. The father makes a really vicious and um, deceptive comment about Satan, which is, 
we're in real trouble. We really have to, we really have to blast him. It's, it's, we could lose everything if we don't punish him. And the son says, good joke. And by saying good joke, what he's basically doing is saying, don't go down that road. I know that it's a joke. The son does that over and over, or over and over is too strong. The son does that over. Um, and his responses to God are frequently do-overs of what God has just said. Um, and that's something to like about the son um, and also to dislike about the father, that what the son says is a lot better for us than what the father says. And Yeah. Well, he, he doesn't believe in the Trinity, so it's God the Father. Um, but you could almost say that justify has a third meaning, which is, or, or really a second meaning. Um, the, the line has a third meaning. So the two possible meanings of line are justify the way God's treat us, the way God treats us, um, or justify to us the way God acts in general. Um, in both those cases, justify means show the justice of. However, there's also a more active use of justify, which is like when a margin is right justified. And it doesn't mean, ah, I can justify this margin, the reason it goes all the way to the right, let me explain to you, because you may think that's unjust, but the reason that the margin goes all the way to the right is because that tells you it's prose and you need to know that it's prose and not poetry, which would have a ragged margin. So it's a lame way of justifying <laughs> the um, right justified margin. Um, but that's what that kind of justification would mean. Let me explain why this fact is a just one. Another kind of justification, and this is actually a more theological meaning of justification. Justification usually applies to humans and not to God. And justification usually means treated or acted upon in a way to make something just. So humans are justified according to the argument between Catholicism and Protestantism. There is justification by faith and justification by works. Justification by faith means you will be saved by your faith. Justification by works means you'll be saved by doing good works. But in both those cases, justification doesn't mean that you will be discovered to be just. It means you will make yourself just, or God will make you just when it comes to justification by faith. So justification, when you write justify your papers, which don't, by the way, but when you write justify your papers, what that means is you are working or you have a computer program that's working to make the right margins go straight down the page. It's not that they naturally go straight down the page. It's not that someone gives you a page with ragged margins and says to you, justify that. And you will say, well, what looks like ragged margins are actually invisible little spirits of letters that go to the end of the line. That's how I justify it. Um, you justify it by tinkering with it, by um, um, doing something to each line to make sure it's the same length as every other line. So to justify the ways of God can mean something like take what he said and interpret it and make him interpret it as something just, even though he didn't mean it as just. Again, it's a version of douchebag explaining. That is that if someone says something that's really awful and you say that's really awful, they will then reinterpret what they've said in a way to make it more just. But you'll know it's actually reinterpreting. That is, that's not what they meant, but now they're trying to make it into something that's more just. So justifying the ways of God to men, in a sense, that's what the son is doing to God himself. God says, humans have to die too bad. And the son says, yes, by that you mean that humans will find grace, and therefore I have taken an unjust thing that you've said, and I've 
justified it in the sense of I made it just. Not I found out that it was just, I actually made it just. I interpreted it so that it would be just. And I changed its meaning in order to give it a just meaning. So if Milton wants that resonance in the word justify at the start to justify the ways of God to men, what he's particularly saying is God does a lot of things that have, that if I can um, change their meaning strongly enough, maybe God will follow my change in their meaning. Or if I'm speaking for the sun and describing how the sun changes their meaning, then that will do the trick of changing their meaning. So at any rate, it's, I think, um, striking to see how the sun both agrees and disagrees with God, how the sun yeses God to death, um, to quote from Invisible Man, which we'll be reading later, that what the sun does is he says yes to God when he actually means something different from what God means. Um, God says, I'm going to do X, and the sun says, yes, I totally agree, Y. And God says, yeah, okay. Um, so th that dynamic is an important and, I think, interesting one. Um, notice that what God has said, here again we can see another characteristic um, fact about Paradise Lost, is that God's line, die he or justice must. Hang on to that line. And now let's go to um, the amazing moment in book four where Satan sees Adam and Eve for the first time. So this is book four um, around line um, 358. Remember, this is after Satan has come to earth and finds he hasn't escaped hell, um, that he um, carries hell within him and says, I myself am hell, which way I fly is hell, and there is no way for him to leave hell. And now he's on the tree of life looking at the Garden of Eden, and he's struck by its spectacular beauty, just struck by it. And finally, as in book one, when, it, when thrice he essayed, and thrice in spite of scorn, tears such as angels weep burst forth. He's unable to speak for a while because he is so emotionally devastated. Here's a second moment of emotional devastation. But finally, Satan, who has been watching, standing, looking at the Garden of Eden all day long, and now it's sunset, and the evening is being ushered in. When Satan, still in gaze, that is still looking, as first he stood, scarce thus at length failed speech, recovered sad. So finally, he can speak, barely. And what he says is, Oh, hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss, thus far, thus high advanced, creatures of other mold, earthborn, perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits, bright, little inferior. So he sees Adam and Eve, and he says, They may be earthborn and not spirits, but they're almost angels. They're so beautiful. <coughs> whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So he almost falls in love with Adam and Eve. He's full of wonder when he sees them, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So lively shines in them divine resemblance. That's the human face divine. And such grace that formed them on their shape hath, I'm so, such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath, and then he addresses them in what's called an apostrophe, um, which is generally in poetry an address to someone who doesn't hear you or something that doesn't hear you. Um, oh, hell is already an apostrophe. Um, but if you say something like, curse you, Donald Trump, as John Stewart might, um, that's an apostrophe because he doesn't hear it. 
Um, if you speak to a Grecian urn or to a nightingale, you're apostrophizing them because they can't understand what you're saying. So to, um, or thou nature art my goddess, is an apostrophe. So Satan to Adam and Eve, ah, gentle, ah, gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches when all these delights will vanish and deliver ye to woe. More woe, the more your taste is now of joy. So he's looking at them and he feels their gentleness and he's sad for them. Now notice he's sad about what he's going to do to them. Here you can compare and contrast him to God who looks at Adam and Eve also and knows that they're going to fall. But God's response is anger. Satan's response is grief. Happy, but for so happy, ill-secured long to continue. It's almost as though he's saying, why didn't God protect you better from me? Look how happy you are. I have to go after you. But why aren't you protected better? Happy, but for so happy, ill-secured long to continue, and this high seat, your heaven, ill-fenced for heaven. It's heaven, but it's not well-protected. Ill-fenced for heaven to keep out such a foe as now is entered. So where do we see that phrase before? Such a foe? Yeah. Yeah, and so there's something really amazing, I think, about the fact that Satan see, can see himself from God's point of view. That is, such a foe, yes. God doesn't really mean it, but Satan is regretting himself. Yes, he's going to do bad things, but he is also seeing and feeling, even in advance, a kind of regret for what he's going to do, and for the fact that God didn't stop him. Adam and Eve would be fine, and Satan, in a sense, would be happier if God had stopped him. He feels such pity for them. And he uses that same phrase, but yes, more realistically, you could say. not I mean, more straightforwardly. To keep out such a foe as now has entered, yet no purposed foe to you whom I could pity thus forlorn though I unpitied. So I could pity you, even You're so forlorn, and you're not my enemy. So remember, God is willing to kill someone as long as someone dies. Satan is thinking somewhat the same way, which is, I have to go against you, even though you're not the ones who did me wrong. And I could pity you, even though I am unpitied. And then he, to quote one of the great 20th century critics on Paradise Lost, um, William Empson, one of the great 20th century critics um, in general, then he makes what Empson calls the eerie offer of all he has to Adam and Eve. And it is eerie, and it is all that Satan has, because he has very little, but this is what he gives them. League with you I seek in mutual amity, so straight, so close, that I with you must dwell, or you with me henceforth. My dwelling, haply, may not please like this fair paradise, your sense, yet such except your maker's work. He gave it me, which I as freely give. So God gave Satan hell, and Satan that's all he has, but he will give it to Adam and Eve. Hell shall unfold to entertain you to her widest gates and send forth all her kings. There will be room, not like these narrow limits in Eden, to receive your numerous offspring. If no better place, thank him who puts me loath to this revenge on you who wrong me not for him who wrongs. So again, 
that could be a paraphrase of God's revenge on the son who wronged him not for, the, for him who wronged for Adam and Eve. Very hard to tell the difference there. And should I, at your harmless innocence, melt as I do? Yet public reason just, so there's that word just again. Satan, too, is appealing to justice. Yet public reason just, honor an empire with revenge enlarged <coughs> by conquering this new world compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So I know what I'm doing is terrible. I don't want to do it. But as the leader of my followers, I have to do it, abhorrent though it is. And then the narrator comments. And I think this comment is really amazing. So spake the fiend. The narrator's angry. He says this is BS. So spake the fiend. And with necessity, the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. So here, Milton is saying, or the narrator is saying in a line and a half, that tyrants always excuse their deeds, building walls, preventing immigrants from coming in, um, bombing cities where the innocent are going to die. They always excuse their deeds because they say it's regrettable but necessary. We have no choice. And what Milton is saying is from the beginning of time, tyrants always justified what they did by saying that it was necessary to do it. Necessity, the tyrant's plea. <coughs> Great four words to remember. Necessity is what the tyrant always calls on, always invokes as the reason for acting as he does. However, who else has said, die he or justice must? God. So what is God's plea there? It's a plea to necessity. It would be great not to have to kill Adam and Eve, but then that would be bad for justice. So here, and this is again really interesting, I think Milton knows exactly what he's doing, is whenever Satan and God behave similarly, and they do, Satan is not exempt from all the taints of avarice, etc., as Shelley puts it. Satan has problems. Whenever Satan and God behave similarly, and they do a lot, with man their place to see if he, by, if he can destroy him or worse, by some false guile, pervert, when they sound alike, the narrator or Milton himself in Paradise Lost, when Satan says something, Milton will immediately show what's wrong with it. And you can realize that the same critique applies to God. He won't say it, but you can see it. And I think it's pretty extraordinary how he does that. OK, I thought we were going to get to um, the beginning of book seven, but we won't. But I just want to show you one thing. Do we have a minute? Oh, yes, we do. It's so nice. We always have a minute, which means I get three. Um, Satan comes to Eve, who's asleep, and gives her a dream. The next morning, she tells Adam her dream. And <coughs> she doesn't know where it comes from. Um, but what she remembers is that an angel in her dream says, eat the fruit. And the angel tells her to eat the fruit. This is book five, line um, 75 or so. Happy thou art, happier thou mayst be, worthier canst not be. Taste this and be henceforth among the gods, thyself a goddess, not to earth confined, but sometimes in the air, as we sometimes ascend to heaven by merit thine and see what life the gods live there and such live thou. So that's the temptation. Now go to um, later on in book five, line um, 468. Raphael is, is um, joining Adam. Eve doesn't get to be part of the meal. She can just serve it. Um, God's view of the relation of men and women. Um, and 
Adam says to Raphael, can you guys really eat food since you're angels? Um, there's a great place where Adam asks Raphael, um, I hope you guys remember this, uh, do you guys have sex? Because it's hard for me to believe that heaven would be good if there's no sex there. Um, and Raphael blushes um, and says, I'm not going to tell you much about it, but yes. Um, so here he says, can you eat food? And Raphael gives an answer. And he, the answer is, is known as the, is, um, the most famous exposition of the great chain of being which is that everything comes from, is of the same nature, and everything goes from the basis matter to the highest spirit. Um, o Adam, one almighty is from whom all things proceed, and up to him return, if not to pray from good. Created all, such to perfection, one first matter all, endued with various forms, various degrees of substance, and in things that live of life, but more refined, more spiritous and pure as nearer to and placed or nearer tending. So quick explanation, things get more and more spiritual as you go up the chain of being, but everything is connected from the grossest matter to the highest spirit. And then this is what I want to point you to. Time may come, he says, um, <coughs> this is at line 493, time may come when men with angels may participate when you'll be able to live on angelic food and find no inconvenient diet nor too light fare. And from these corporal nutriments, perhaps your bodies may at last turn all to spirit, improved by tract of time, and winged ascend ethereal as we, or may a choice here or in heavenly paradises dwell. So notice that what Satan has said is that you won't be confined to earth, but sometimes in the air, as we sometimes ascend to heaven. And that very phrase, ethereal, that is airy, as we, you can winged ascend to heaven. So Satan's temptation and Raphael's doctrine are very, very close to each other. It's not as though Satan is saying, ah, screw God, you're the man, to Eve. Satan is saying pretty much the same thing Raphael is. It's very, very close. And that strange as we nails down the echo. Okay, um, through book 10 for tomorrow. Um, we're getting there. <laughs>